and welcome to Life Until Death. I'm Nicole. I was drinking Earl Grey tea. My name's Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> and today we are talking about heartbreak on this, our fifth episode. Oh, God, that's depressing. Why is that depressing? It's fucking heartbreak. How could it not be depressing? Oh, I thought you meant the fact that we had our fifth episode. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> the fact we've been talking to each other for how long are our episodes? Like an hour and a half each? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, before editing, they're like five hours, but... <laughs> So yes, we've picked a really, really cheerful topic for you today, which we will be discussing. But first, before we get to the heartbreak, how are you, Rachel? I'm fucking rancidly hungover. Like, I'm wrapped up in my mesh, lovely, coverall duvet thing with a packet of Doritos and leftover lemonade from last night. Breakfast of champions. <laughs> of queens. <laughs> Let me just snuggle in more. Let me just get into my cocoon. And then we're into the podcast. I had porridge today. That's very virtuous. With with a banana in it. I was living it up. I was living my my best life. (laughs) Boy, you know how to party. I love porridge is the perfect breakfast food. Because you can put whatever shit in it. You can make it unhealthy or you can make it super healthy with a bunch of fruit. But you could put like chocolate chips in there. Just dust it with meth. (laughs) (laughs) i gotta clean all my house and the neighbor's house today it's just porridge with a light dusting of (laughs) that no but it's got the protein it's got the carbs it's got everything right it's jack daniels has that doesn't it no no it's just no i don't think jack daniels is very protein rich (laughs) it's the vomit that you bring up afterwards oh god I haven't vomited yet. Yet. (laughs) Wait till after. Wait till after we record, please, because I don't want to be hearing that, like, (laughs) (laughs) and so I'm reminded why sobriety is a good choice, and I enjoy not being hungover. I will. I will judge you. Well, I've been smoking all the cigarettes again, and drinking all the whiskey, and I started posting pictures of my fucking face again. You're on a downward spiral. Yeah. This is an intervention. <laughs> I'm relapsing. Yeah. Get me a program. The whole podcast is fake. I have just gotten contact with you, so I can tell you that we're checking you into a rehab facility. Oh, fuck. Again? Again? Yeah. It's a nice one, though. It's one used by Martha Stewart when she had exhaustion, so... Fuck. Yeah, you'll be doing some yoga, you'll oh. be having three square meals... And many snacks. Fuck. Yeah, I know. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Like, I kind of want to go to a spa rehab. A spa (laughs) rehab? Well, that's what all the rich celebrity ones are like. Basically spas. And you just don't do drugs while you're there. Yeah. Well, you don't knowingly do drugs. You kind of put yourself in the position where you could be doing all the drugs. I mean, yeah. But they mostly go, they always go for like exhaustion, don't they? They go for exhaustion and like, I don't know. Manic episodes or something. <laughs> manic episodes. They always have. <laughs> they have their meltdown on Twitter, right? And it's probably because they're anorexic and also doing drugs. But they're like, yeah. "Oh, I'm so exhausted from this book tour or whatever," <laughs> and then they go to rehab for like mm, eight weeks and they come out and they're glowing again. And I kind of I want that, but without the meltdown part, without the crippling, life shattering addiction bit. Yeah, yeah, that exactly. That's just going to the fucking spa, isn't it? 
Have you ever been so tired from work and family stuff that you like wish you would get really ill and go to the hospital so you could just sleep in one of those beds? I think that's why I got pregnant with my son, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, ooh, I need some fucking time off work. What is available to me? Let's get knocked up. (laughs) Yes, good idea. It is socially acceptable. (laughs) I, I don't get pregnant every time I want time off. I've only had time off once. (laughs) Like seven years ago. Like every three months you're in the your supervisor's office. Like, I'd like to submit a request. I am pregnant again and will be requiring a year off. Thank you. It's totally worth it. And like, you know, all the years after, you know, they're not stressful at all. So it it really balances out nicely. No, I mean he turned around the other day and he was like, Mummy, so when am I getting a brother or sister? I just looked at him and went, Boy, we're going on some really expensive holidays and mummy's getting another Harley. Shall we just put that to bed? Yeah, you're getting another brother. His name is Harley. <laughs> and his lovely CCV twins. <laughs> <laughs> I as you know, uh, I do want another one at some point, maybe in the future. Um Go but- ahead, I can just queue over yours then. Okay, I'll be like, here you go. Babysitter already lined up. I'm okay with that because, you know, you can keep your ruined vagina and lack of money for the next five years. And I'll just be like, oh, your baby's really cute. And you were a really fucking cute baby as well. That Me? Picture, yes, that picture you posted up with you and your dad. And I was like, look at her fucking face. I was adorable. You were lovely. I'm still adorable. Yeah. I'm still pretty small too. Like, my yeah. hands are really tight. I still have baby hands. Like... <laughs> <laughs> That part didn't grow. Like, look at me with my tiny hands. Look at me. So I thought, take my strong hand. Yeah, I mean, look at me holding this mug. Like, <laughs> it's like a child clasping a basin. I drink from a thimble, and I live under a mushroom. Oh, I almost choked up my drink. Then don't do that. That's a bit of sick. <clears throat> All right, so you're hungover. I am not because I do not drink. I have, I am, however, hungover from actually going out and working again. Yeah, fucking hell. Like, you're no longer a kept woman after, what was it, 10 years? Kept woman. (laughs) Bitch, I was keeping myself. No, all right. Um, Yeah, no, I'm just on placement at the moment, which obviously because of COVID, our original placements got cancelled. So now... I am working in oncology, which is quite interesting. I've never, never worked in oncology before. I love the fact that you find all of the depressing places to be in a hospital really fascinating. Well, it is. It's hugely fascinating. But that doesn't mean I don't have sympathy for the people that are, you know, going through it. Like, you know, it is awful. It is just a terrible, terrible thing. But from a medical point of view, from a student point of view, it's cool as fuck. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. It destroys lives. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> the death bit, the unexpected, the quick slash slow death. Well, not just death either. It's quality of life. <clears throat> that you know, I help with chemotherapy, radiotherapy, immunotherapy. It all, it all is so hard on the body. And I gotta say though, the patients are some of the nicest, most understanding, most patient, I guess, (laughs) they're patient patients um, that I've ever come across. They are, for the most part, obviously not all of them. You still have your like, you know, more demanding, a bit harder to care for, but it's completely understandable given everything they're going through. And 
I can't say that if I was a patient, I would be, oh, I'd be the worst patient. I would be terrible. I'd be yelling at everybody. I'd be demanding everything. So... Do you know what, though? Everyone in mental health is like, oh, if I ever got sectioned, I'd be the worst patient. I'm just sat there like, well, when I got sectioned. <laughs> You're like, ah! In actual fact, I think I was in the office at the same time as when I was with the nurse that looked after me as well. And I was then working with her. Wow, nice. I know, right? Yeah. Don't shit where you work, Rachel. Yeah, I've been told that a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> what actual shit? no no, I can't I can't deal with that I shit where I work every day like you gotta save your poops for when you're on the workplace yeah no our friend Claire like like, she won't mind me saying this she revels in taking a shit at work she's like (laughs) and she'll send me a text going I have just been paid to take a shit (laughs) oh fuck first responder humor (laughs) it makes you feel better after too so you're like I'm refreshed I might as well have gotten a facial. Like, you know, I'm refreshed when I pop out of the toilet and I can, after washing my hands thoroughly, I can take care of all of you. You clearly haven't ever tried to shit on a psychiatric ward then because, like... <laughs> well, somebody's like, ah, open the door. As soon as you get in that fucking toilet, you can guarantee that the alarms will go off. <laughs> Is it like having a cat where you see the paw, like, under the door? Like, you just see, like, a hand, like... Okay, about times where I've been, like, in there changing a tampon or, you know, like, having a wee or something, mm-hmm. and then suddenly, like, meh, 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 what happened? And it's like, fucking hell, someone died! <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, the patients are lovely, and they're so... They have so much understanding for me as a student, so they're so willing to talk to me about their experience, which is great, because... You know, there's lots of things I can't do. I can't, I'm not allowed to cannulate, which is so frustrating because this would be the perfect placement to practice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of things I can't do, but what I can do is talk to patients and listen to patients um, and just learn their stuff, which is to me, one of the biggest parts of nursing. Like you can train a monkey to like put an IV up, right? Have you been practicing your empathy skills? Yes. Have you been, have you actually been? Doing your empathy. I'm like, I like refer to my notebook, like, listen, stay silent, ask an open question. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> look interested. Look interested. Body language. No, I'm, I think, I'm naturally, I think, an empathetic person. I'm a good listener. Do you? People talk to me. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> it's, but everyone can use a brush up of the skills, right? And like I said, I think nursing, a huge part of that is not just the clinical skills, but also understanding the patient experience, because that's who the care Mm. is centered on. You know, they've been so nice sitting there while I like ineffectually take off their bandages and like probably hurt them. I'm sorry. Let me practice on you. (laughs) I I did my first my first urinary catheter, which was amazing. She was great. It was a. It was actually a patient that did self catheterization, right. which is incredible. Like, can you oh, imagine doing that? that? Have you ever had a catheter? No, I haven't. Oh. What does it feel like? I've never had one. Oh, but they look fucking terrifying. Like, even having what was it? Your test thing, um, smear tests. Yes, and they poke you right up there with the That's thing. That's the wrong hole, though. Is it? You know, there's I like fucking. Oh, I know there's a couple down there. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. So under the clit there's a the woman has a vagina. The male has a penis. Thirty two years and given birth to a child. 
So there's like a tinier hole okay. where the urethra is, which is where the catheter goes, right? Yeah, I know that. Okay. You were, you, were <laughs> kind of talk, comes you were kind of talking like you you didn't know that. But <laughs> anyway, um, so this patient, she was good with me because I probably, I was like sweating and like probably my catheter hand was like shaking like by her and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like that's my, that's my normal, like for the first time when I do something on the ward, if I know how to do it, I look like a fucking pro. All right. Like if it's like drawing up meds that I've done like a hundred times, I look cool as a cucumber when it's the first time or the second time I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hope it doesn't hurt. I'm so sorry. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so any patient that allows me with good grace to actually learn on them, incredibly grateful. And I don't know that in their position, I would be so gracious. I mean, you can practice anything if you need to, <clears throat> apart from going near my pee hole. Okay. So I can cannulate you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> I mean, take blood you know do a couple of stitches what the fuck you need to do but you're not going near my magical magical place yeah, not 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 the catheter I'm saying I can cannulate you oh but... sorry sorry I still I'm still stuck on badge yeah no area no blood I'll take your blood it's just dust <laughs> <laughs> It's dust being pumped out of your black, shriveled heart, yes. With a smidgen of Jack Daniels weeping out there too. So anyway, that's been my last few weeks is getting sort of oriented and learning things. And I haven't been actually on in a hospital for, because my last placement wasn't in a hospital. So I haven't actually been on a ward or unit for like uh, a year maybe. And so... Part of it is me kind of like, what am I doing? And then the other part is like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. I got this. So (laughs) it's just that. Yeah. Placement. I was saying to Drew the other day that placement is like, I said to him, you know, like the first day of your job, you're getting introduced to everybody. You don't remember anyone's names. You don't know what's going on. You want to start work and help, but you don't know how to work anything. You're kind of just, and nobody expects anything of you because they know you're new, right? Mm -hmm. That's like every day in placement. I really had that when I did a placement with a clinical commissioning group and I sat there amongst this <laughs> this group of real big wigs in Bristol and I was like, fuck. And you're like, I have a backpack from Smiggle and it has all of my colored pens in it. Look at my highlighters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, just when you start to figure out what's going on and know what you're doing, your placement's over and that's it. And then you move on to the next place. And it's totally new again. And you're just like, oh, what? (laughs) Somebody will be like, oh, go find so-and-so and and tell her that blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, first of all, who's that? What are you talking about? Where am I? What What is going on? And where are my white drugs? (laughs) I got to say, wearing the mask for 11 hours, that's Mm. fun. Yeah, how do you cope with that? I mean, it's the surgical mask. So it's a bit easier to breathe through than like a cotton mask. I, there are occasions when I'm like, I literally have to go in the break room and pull it up because like, I cannot breathe. It kind of makes me angry. People won't wear them for like 20 minutes when they go out to the store and I have to wear them for many, many, many hours at the same time. That's their right. And then we know, as we know in healthcare, everyone has the right to make poor choices. 
Yep. Uh, <laughs> I will still be wearing the mask because I have to. And frankly, I would want to anyway, because our patients are immunocompromised. So yeah. I'll do everything possible to keep them safe. But yeah, it gets hard. It does. Steamy glasses situation. Do you have that? Doesn't work with me. Really? I have giant glasses. Oh, we both have giant glasses. I think it helps a lot. And you got to just put it up right up on the nose there. And yeah, I'm okay. Bad breath situation, however. Bad breasts? Breath. Oh, breath. Sorry. Breath. <laughs> How is that relevant to breathing? They're well, outside. <laughs> they're outside. Like, there are so many times when I've put the mask on and I realize, oh my God, my breath is terrible. I'm having that right now. I haven't even brushed my fucking teeth yet. Yeah. And I'm like, has my breath been terrible this whole time? And I haven't had the mask and not known? Like... What is going on? Do people see me and they're like, oh God, there's Nicole. Don't let her breathe on you. Like, <laughs> it's that one with the breath. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, not not having to worry about bad breath and not having to worry about stuff in your teeth either because nobody can see it. Everybody has this weird like half closed eye thing. Like to indicate. Like I'm smiling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My face is smiling and you can't see me. Squint. <laughs> Squint. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It is interesting. I just developed the sociopath eyes a bit. You today, <laughs> really wide open. At looking wink, like... wink. <laughs> are you good? <laughs> and I've done some COVID tests, which are horrible, and I do not recommend. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, have you done any? Have you had one or no? It's like so you put the the Q tip right back of the throat in the urethra. <laughs> no, not in the urethra. Absolutely not. If anyone does that to you in a back alley, they are not a doctor. Do not listen to them. Where they touched you. <laughs> you do it the way back of the throat, so they gag, and then you take the same swab and you stick it up their nose as far as it'll go. <laughs> like, literally, until you meet, like, resistance, oh. which I guess is the skull. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's generally gagging. But no, I'm sorry, that was, yeah, nose. It is, and you do that with both nostrils, so it is the most horrible experience. So even if they said, we're going to test every healthcare worker, like, every week, I would probably be like, no thanks, that's okay. Like, unless, oh. you know, if it was for safety, for patients, yeah, okay, but if it was just for my own benefit, nah, nope, thank you. It is dreadful. Fuck. And that's another one of those procedures where you, the whole time you're like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stab. I'm, I'm sorry. so sorry. <laughs> Gag. I don't. It's horrible. Like, I hate that. Like, nobody wants to cause pain to people. Well, some mm -hmm. people do, but they probably shouldn't be working in healthcare then. <laughs> and now we nicely move on to heartbreak. Heartbreaker. <laughs> love. Take care. <coughs> oh, fuck. Is that how that song goes? You're a heartbreaker. Love. Take care. I will break you in the vagina. Pat Benatar, isn't it? I fucking no. Oh my god. See, if we had the rights, the license, we could play that song, but we don't. <laughs> Instead, so I'm, just, I'm just going to sing it. I'm just going to sing Heartbreaker. <laughs> Fuck my fucking life. I've got a hangover. I've got to do with this shit. That is not my fault. Neither is you your voice. You should have thought about that. You should have thought, I've got to record a podcast tomorrow, so maybe I shouldn't drink very much and smoke a million cigarettes. Okay, about at four o'clock in the morning after watching a horror film. I don't watch horror films. No? I don't like horror films. Horror films frighten me. And last night, the assertive choice was made to watch a horror film. Okay. And I didn't cry or set fire to myself. I think I'm growing up. 
<laughs> you're like the biggest first of all you're the biggest goth in the world yeah you've got a room full of skulls and like big titted witches like sculptures and I think stuff got some tarot cards though yeah you've got tarot cards your your entire being is is black and darkness and dark <laughs> and you don't watch horror films and inside i'm like please don't put on the ring i will cry oh the ring is scary though oh, fuck the oh man okay did, have you seen Get Out? No, I've heard of it. It's meant to be horrible. <gasps> it's great, but it's a really good movie. Okay. So, yeah, it's it deals with race, and it is has a horror element, and it's amazing. Ugh. And I don't even, I don't like horror movies, but I love Get Out. Like, my, my psyche is fragile at the best of times. I don't need that. I don't need anything fucking with my brain more than I fuck with my brain. I think people who love horror movies generally don't have much else going on. Maybe that's their their excitement and their adrenaline. Maybe? I don't know. I'm generalizing here. I don't need that. (laughs) More adrenaline, please. Give me all of the the off-the-baseline reactions to that. Spooky. Shall we move on to our topic then? Yeah, yeah. Before I insult another demographic. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so we're looking at heartbreak. Heartbreak. Okay. Um, fuck, when I started researching this, all it, like, <laughs> and I might have, like, had a couple of Google searches over the last couple of months that weren't related to the podcast. Um, and it's just 10 tips to get over heartbreak. Do these six things to move on from your lover. Is one of them yoga? <laughs> one of them's Jack Daniels. <laughs> nice. And it's just, it's, it's patronising bullshit. And when I was trying to look at, like, the dimensions of breakups, mental health, and all the rest of it, I thought, fuck it. Let's actually just go for telling the story of someone who broke up with someone with mental health issues. Whoa. That's a hard thing to admit, isn't it? I know, right? Because you, you, the first reaction is, that person is horrible. They're a fucking asshole. Yeah. But, you know, I've been in that position. And no matter how much that you put yourself forward and say, you know, you know, I'm a little bit fucked up sometimes too. I don't think it fully settles until you're in that situation. You're like, well, bitch, be crazy. Uh. <laughs> Women be shopping. You heard it here first. <laughs> but yeah, I find it quite interesting. And that's, it's the point of going back to last week's, I guess. When do you give up? When do you, you say enough is enough? So, yeah, I found this really nice little article uh, article story by Alice Gibbs, and you can follow her on Insta. She's mm-hmm. very pretty. Um, new boyfriend. Apparently not mentally ill. Um, well, aren't we all a little bit inside, though? Yeah. I find it hard to believe. One in four people will be touched by mental illness in their lifetime, so. Whereas just cut me and you'll see a ring of lithium going all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you're supposed to age your goth? <laughs> Cut them in half and <laughs> count the Look at how ring. many antidepressants and psychiatric <laughs> meds they've taken. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Well, Alice started off with saying, I can't be with you anymore. I said through tears to my boyfriend of five years. It was late 2016. We were both 21 and we both loved each other very much. But there was another person in our relationship threatening to destroy us both. They breathed down the neck at every social event. They cast dark shadow over every happy moment. And I knew I needed to get out but things weren't that simple. Uh, I realised depression would be a third person in our relationship from the start. When we met in college, we were just 18. He was very open about his mental illness and he suffered from depression for a few years before we met. 
uh, I was in and out of hospital with an eating disorder since I was 12. We supported each other and he acted like he cared and understood most of the time. Um, but navigating mental health is never easy. So four years later, this had worked for us. We dealt with our issues. We utilised the amazing NHS medical support we are getting. Yay, NHS. <laughs> I learned how to deal with things better. I had therapy, managed my eating disorder through intensive therapy and medication. He was much better at coping with his depression. We spent nearly every day together and we were kind of in each other's pockets. But we liked it that way. We were always very close and open and strived to support each other endlessly. We'd spent hours watching television and chatting and just comfortable in our own company. Oh, this is sounding great so far. <clears throat> oh, fuck. <clears throat> Are you okay? Yep. Okay. However, as, dun, we dun, dun. <laughs> as we turned 20, things began to change. And hair grew an unusual place. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm reading this and I'm like... 20? Are you fucking kidding me? When I was 20, I was just about to go to fucking Texas on a Harley. On well, I know. Own. It's like, oh, our relationship ended because of mental illness. No, your relationship ended because you're a you fucking are- child! <laughs> Sorry, Alice. Oh, let's link her up after this. Um, <laughs> she's, she's gonna listen to this and be like, fuck you. <laughs> and your shitty podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. However, when we turned 20, things changed. (laughs) No shit. Um, He began to make new friends, and what we used to do on social occasions now just became him smoking marijuana daily. Oh, well. Not Um, the best for depression, marijuana, I find. No, apparently not, but lots of people do it, apparently. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Apparently. I don't smoke marijuana, by the way, but other people I know might. Yeah, I don't know the, the number of times I have seen patients self-medicating with marijuana. Oh, and it's like, no. there's a difference between, like, pain relief and... There's I mean, a difference between recreation and fucking sedating yourself to life. Exactly, exactly. Said no one in their divorce papers ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not all day, he would say. But when I asked why, he'd say that he'd smoked it because he had filled down, so... I used to go alone to parties and go and see friends. And this is just a pattern of me doing things now. And he'd never been too far away from his coping mechanism when he started it. He began to lose faith in doctors, um, instead of just smoke huge amounts of weed with his new friends. Our time together was peppered with arguments. The minor things that we disagreed on, like whether to go out with friends or him asking me to clean up, became huge arguments. I knew depression was making the simplest thing difficult for him, and I wanted to sympathise, but we were losing patience. This in turn made me feel guilty, and we'd constantly flip between screaming rows and tearful apologies. I missed the person I once knew, became angry and exhausted, and desperately trying to fix him. I mean, this is... My marriage? Sorry. (laughs) Whoa. I didn't go there. Didn't say which one. This has... I feel like, obviously, the depression is making him more of an addictive personality and smoking marijuana a lot to self-medicate. But I feel this is less because he had depression and more because he had a substance abuse problem and was also... But which one perpetuated which? Just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you're an asshole, right? Or stupid. It, it, the, you know? the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can be an asshole and still have a mental illness. Well, or 
Yeah. And I mean, so if I break up with somebody who's being an asshole who also has depression, it's not like I'm breaking up with you because of your depression. You're not depression. breaking up with the depression, you're breaking up with the asshole. Exactly. Like, oh, fuck doctors, but Chad, my supplier, has <laughs> the answer. Has some purple haze right now. Yeah, exactly. And that's going to fix everything. Thanks, Dr. Chad. <laughs> So, so when he left for university a few months later, things really changed. Um, where I couldn't really imagine my life before without him, suddenly we're miles apart and I felt calmer, more relaxed when I didn't see him. But he was still really struggling and I wanted to make everything better for him. I loved him and I couldn't stand seeing him in pain. Aww. Also, I'd realised that I'd started to fit my own life around his. Barely seeing friends. Instead of going to class and studying, I was travelling to see him. Um, I felt I was obliged to be there just making sure he was okay, but not really knowing how to help him, and it was hurting me. A month before the breakup, things had reached an all-time low. He was sending me texts every 20 minutes without fail, and every rep- I replied to every single one because I was scared of what he might do if I didn't to himself. And this was making me tired. Um, I just wanted to go out and enjoy myself like everyone else at that age, but I couldn't. We both felt trapped. I'd become his crutch to avoid his problems, and he started spending more time with other people and actively avoiding seeing me. Every time we were together, we were miserable, and I felt like I was going to snap from the strain that it was putting on my own mental health. I was struggling to sleep. I'd started seeing other people, sort of, and mental health specialists. There's times when you're with a partner who's constantly required to fix the other person. It might be playing an unhealthy part in the relationship, and that was apparently... A quote by consultant psychiatrist Dr. Haralulu Constantino. Wow, that, that. <laughs> Harolo Constantino. Constantino. Fuck. Thanks. If you're a listener, Dr. Constantino. Let us know how to pronounce your name. Thank you. And well done for the psychiatrist bit. Um, and then goes on to say, for example, they may always assume the role of the rescuer. Fuck. Maureen said this to me the other day. Mm. Oh, apparently I'm the rescuer. Anyway, we'll address that in next week's therapy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Which might disempower the person from addressing their difficulties separately. Thanks, Maureen. Dr. Constantinadou continues (laughs) to say, the partner who's helpful might feel burnt out, stuck in the guilt that the relationship is no longer fulfilling their emotional needs. Yet they're afraid of upsetting their partners. Relationships based on guilt and dependence do not work in the long term for either party. See, I found the exact opposite. Lots of dependence. <laughs> Just lots of. I will latch onto you like a moss on a shady tree. And then um... I will call you daddy. <laughs> <laughs> no kink shaming. Thank you. <laughs> um. She says that she knew she had no choice but to end it. She was barely eating and she struggled with the idea of telling him. She was asking, would he be okay? Would everyone hate her? Would every anyone ever be able to forgive her for doing it? And she said it was the hardest thing that she'd done. But two weeks later, she broke up with him. Party! <laughs> Woo! Let's have a 20-year-old party now! So he was confused and heartbroken by my decision and he tried to get me to change my mind, but I didn't. For my own mental health, I couldn't. Afterwards, most people were really supportive, especially my parents. Um, they'd seen how much the relationship had affected us both and couldn't understand, could understand it was for the best. You knew her parents the entire time were like, man, fuck this guy. He is dragging <laughs> our daughter down. Asshole. And also, you know that when she broke up with him, she went fucking crazy. She probably bought a ton of hoe clothes from Forever 21. <laughs> she went out clubbing. 
She probably got some. She got the coil fitted. Yeah, exactly. She went nuts, and good for her. Good for her. That is her right. Yeah, your parents knew best. They always said that he was a fuck up. Now I get your vagina filled. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Missed you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so other people had no qualms with telling her how horrible she was. They asked how I could be so selfish. How I could do this to him. Everything I'd spent months worrying about was being vocalised by them, and I felt really consumed with my guilt. Oh my god, that that makes me so angry. It's like, you are not a therapist. You are not this person's, like, healer, you know? There's a certain, in every relationship, there's a certain amount of healing and helping that goes on. But when it becomes, like, such a dependent relationship, yeah, you know, that's not sexy. I don't want to be a sexy psychotherapist. Like, you lay on the couch. Like, no, like... Oh, yeah, I've definitely put people in that position before. Uh, yeah. But you got paid for it, right? No. Oh. Relationship. Oh, man. Yeah. Relationships are the worst. You don't get paid at all. In fact, you spend money. Like... <laughs> they just bleed you. <laughs> Dr. Constantina Du says reaching out to someone for help is best. Talking to a friend or counsellor about how you feel might help you remember that you're staying in this dysfunctional relationship um, that's just worse in the long term for everyone. <clears throat> she says, two years later, I'm healthier and happier. Um, I've also learned that my three mutual friends that my ex is too. Yay. So, yeah, that, that was that, really. She says that she's no one can be responsible for saving anyone else. Um, and if that relationship had not ended when it did, I don't know where either of us would be now. Well, you'd probably be old and fucking 20 for a start. (laughs) (laughs) I think probably it was probably the best thing for him as well, you know, because as long as he's stuck in that dependent relationship, he doesn't have any impetus to get better. But when he doesn't have his girlfriend wiping his ass all the time, then he has to actually get out and do something. Pull up his big boy pants. So this topic is a bit sensitive for me because I am acutely aware that I, I suffer from depression, quite serious bouts, you know, when I, I've been stable for the most part lately, but I have had really, really bad bouts and Drew gets me through those times and he helps and he does everything in his power to help, but I can tell it takes a toll on him. And it terrifies me that he's going to one day be like, this is too much work. I can't fix you. I'm not asking him to fix me. You know, I'm kind of asking just for some support and he's more than happy to give it and he does give it, but I'm worried that it's going to be too much. I think as long as you're always keeping or trying to keep on top of your own shit independently, it's like probably for the vast majority of most of my relationships, I've been in therapy. There's only been probably a couple of years that I haven't been in therapy since I was born, but there's always going to be times where you don't feel like you can handle something. And I think that's okay to say. But also, sort of conversely, when you get into a relationship with someone and they tell you that you, they have a mental illness and that things aren't always good, fucking listen to that. If someone's putting it on the table and saying, I have depression or I have BPD or I have bipolar, make the fucking effort to look into what that means for that person and ask those questions. Because 
at the start of a relationship when people are new and shiny and putting their first foot forward and you know Rachel's putting on a red lipstick and putting on slightly clothes no that's like case um and you're shaving like every other day god I sent Claire a picture of when I actually did shave the other day like the remnants that was in the bath it was like a fucking tundra it was like a dog groomer it's like a poodle Jesus in there right Christ. but yeah no she appreciated that picture clearly but at some point you have that flip turn and you'll see that other person really, really vulnerable. And it's about not divorcing yourself from that experience. And I've been told this before, like, I'm really, really competent and I'm quite functional with life and doing most things apart from hangovers. When it comes to I'm either really well or I'm not well. And on the days where I'm not well, it's about reminding that the other person is still in there. Mm. And it's not the fact that you've been duped into getting into a relationship with someone with mental illness. It's just there's those two sides. You know, there's someone when they're well and someone when they're they're not so great. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I started with Drew, I was an alcoholic mess. And that I have taken steps to fix by really not drinking anymore. Have. Yeah. I probably could benefit from CBT or some kind of therapy. Um I don't like being on the medication because it makes me gain weight. And you know how I am with that yep. business. <laughs> um, so there could be more steps I could take, I will admit. But to be honest, I don't know. You know, I don't have time for that shit. Like, but it's like now, like, I'll be going back out into the world at some point and, you know, doing my, my thing. And for me, it's always been because I've got very visible self-harm scars. I've always had to have that pre-date fucking conversation with people like, well, I need to tell you that that's there. It's no longer an issue. I'm not going to be like all cutty on first date and fucking Nando's. <laughs> um, why would you have to Nando's? Anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just my chicken and self-injury. That, I like that that was your like first, like... I really fancy some chicken right now. Very oh, puri. But anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, you have to have a conversation at the start when you first meet someone and it's really fucking jarring because it's like mm. okay I now need to tell you the thing that I felt most vulnerable about in the world because you're gonna fucking see it it's yeah it's hard because you don't want to like nobody wants to lead the first date with like here is a list an itemized list of all the things that are wrong with me look at my trauma yes <laughs> lay it bare <laughs> exactly you know you want to like have some nice chit chat about whatever what unis you went to and then go home and have sex like that's people don't have sex after a first date do they no i never have no me neither fucking hell those hoes um <laughs> this is all said with extreme irony i will say yeah of course <clears throat> <clears throat> sorry hi mum i th i just really struggle with this because you know i've, I've been married a couple of times and Hopefully won't be married a couple more times. But <laughs> never striking it off the cards, guys. Never striking nope. it off the cards. I think the main thing when it comes to relationships and mental illness and avoiding heartbreak is educating yourself and getting to know not just the nice shiny bits of that person, but the shitty bits too. Mm. And it's like that Marilyn Monroe quote, if you can't handle me at my worst, oh, God. <laughs> you don't deserve me at my best. Oh, shit. You know how many like really problematic people I've seen post that meme? Like, yep. I don't even think it's an actual Marilyn Monroe quote. No, I neither do I, but I everyone that posts it are fucking damaged, aren't they? Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
I think a lot of people see their mental illness as a personality trait as well. Mm. And when a relationship is getting kind of boring, they use that as a, I'm generalizing a lot here because mm. I don't do this. I know I don't, I don't want to be ill, but it happens sometimes. But I think for some people that mental illness, like in our, in our example here that we talked about today, you know, that mental illness was like a major aspect of the relationship. Normal people like to go to the park and hold hands and like walk and maybe do wild swimming or something. They're like, we like to have screaming fights and get sad and be dependent on each other. Like, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you know, it's unhealthy. And I think a lot of people, other people have had a diverse spectrum of relationships. Like not all of mine have been catastrophic. It's different having a relationship with someone that has got an extra dimension to their person personality, whether it's mental illness, whether it's addiction, you know, whatever. They like orange juice with bits in rather oh, than smooth. Fuck. No, that wouldn't be happening ever. <laughs> like that's the deal breaker. You can have like schizo personality disorder, but please. And I'm sorry, but all of the following that is now knowing that, that, that I'm single and needs to put forward applications if you like peanut butter that isn't smooth, there ain't go- nothing going on nowhere. And bits in the orange juice can fuck right off with that. I'm a bit, I'm torn about the peanut butter. Like, I kind of like the, the chunks. Like it, the chunk. it ruins the bread, though. It just kills it. Like, how do you spread that? Maybe really good satay sauce with it, though. Well. We digressed. Uh, <laughs> say, Rachel, that you have a breakup caused by mental illness of either you or your partner. How can you get over such a breakup? Um, I'm guessing I could die. Well, yes, that would... (laughs) Death is the quickest way to get over anything. Yeah. But I think specifically some practical advice might be... Oh, of course it would, yeah. Sorry, I was just getting you prepared for your bit. Well, yeah, I did find some really shitty advice... But there was there was one, <laughs> <laughs> and we're sharing it because I'm just, I'm just finding the shitty advice for you because you're gonna find it on Google anyway. Okay. Um, but there was a lady called Jess Stonefield, and she said, "I've been dealing with anxiety and depression for long enough to know that they can cause problems in even even the healthiest relationships. In fact, they were central to many breakups I've had over the last twenty years. Not the last twenty years of life. This lady actually has experienced some." I get scared, I get clingy, I get sad, I get check, needed. Check, 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 check. <laughs> I'm sorry, are those negative traits or? Depends who's dealing with it. <laughs> so it can be a lot to deal with. Um, I know this and even the most compassionate partners have problems in handling it. The thing is, breakups are already really difficult. But when your mental illness is the cause of the breakup, it can make it so much harder. Preach. Um not only are you left holding the remnants of a broken relationship, you're left looking in the mirror at the things that caused that to dissolve. You're left to feel like both a victim and a perpetrator. It hurts and it can make your mental illness feel like it's more unbearable. So what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> Follow these five tips to help you move on following mental illness related breakup. Hopefully form more helpful relationships moving forward, said Maureen, my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Preach, Maureen. Maureen. Hashtag Maureen. <laughs> so, first of all, look within. Yoga. <laughs> Giants. Um. <laughs> get, get a really good mirror and get on your back. 
you are not to blame for your mental illness. There are some behaviours that you might not be able to control, but it's still valuable to look and see if there's something you can do to change for the better. Can you work on the trust issue, communication, space, codependence? Nicole? Um, <laughs> sorry, pardon? I don't see how that has any relevance to me. Oh, okay. Whatsoever. Well, uh, she's just throwing it out there. Even small steps in the right direction can help with future partners. Secondly, make amends. It can be easy to go on the defensive about mental illness. After all, it's not something we ask for. But you would be surprised at how empowering it can be to acknowledge it. Not only to yourself, but to your ex-partner as well. Take responsibility for the crazy. For the slammed phones, missed events, messed up plans. It's okay to admit that mental illness has an impact on both of your futures. So it's okay to admit that your mental illness impacts on both of you. Number three. Take some time. See step one. <laughs> I don't remember what step one was. What's fucking step one? Shit. Look within. Look within. Step one, then oh, step three. God. You gotta be single to make yourself happy, to know how to make yourself happy before you can make someone else happy. I got it. Let's move on to number four. <laughs> I hate that advice. I've not been I haven't been single since I was fourteen years old. Fuck, really? Right. That's true. Damn. I know. I think the longest period of time that I have been single since I was, fuck, 16? It's probably about six months. God. This we is can't, what, we this... can't help it. We can't help that guys want to get with us. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> like. Fist bump. <laughs> okay, number four. Be forgiving of yourself and your partner. In my case, I know it isn't easy to be, to be my boyfriend. I know that I need to give... I need to forgive people for their impatience with me, just as I'd ask them to forgive me for the dates I've missed or special occasions I've missed or social anxiety. Life isn't easy. Part of the burden is lifted when you accept this and forgive. Number five, release the sense of abandonment. Dance in the rain. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell, babe. (laughs) Many of us struggle with mental illness and may feel a sense of abandonment when you choose to leave because of it. That's natural. But one thing you must remember is it isn't their job to love you. It's your job to love you. Am I getting paid for this? (laughs) If it's my job to love me, I want to know. What are the benefits like? God, if I was getting paid for self-love, then I'd be fucking rich right now. Too much information. Touché. Whoa. <laughs> show, me, show me that drawer in your bedroom. Hashtag <laughs> student finance, not allowed. Right. Did, it, did all your student finance go to lovehoney.com? You got a fucking 20% discount with them. Oh, yeah, the student discount. Yeah. And they have a year-long return policy. Oh, really? Yeah, no questions asked. Fuck off. Just so you know. Why would you return that? I don't know, but I saw it on a, a documentary about them once. Oh, I watched that too as well. And the guy was like wearing gloves, like <laughs> going through their turns. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's probably somebody's fetish, like to send back stuff. Oh, there's knowing that people are like looking at people it. People that get in septic tanks, of course, there'd be a fetish for that. Ew. Okay, moving on. Anyway, love sense, yourself. <laughs> yeah, a sense of abandonment. Oh, so the truth is, it takes a special kind of person to compassionately love someone with mental illness especially for the long haul. Ain't that the fucking truth? Yeah. If you've experienced breakup due to your mental health, take time to learn from it. Every lesson will move us one step forward to happily, to the happily ever after. 
Get messed up. Sorry. <laughs> Why is that concept so amusing to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not just because our mood enhances, but because we have finally found a healthier way to love. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's it's hard. You know, if Drew one day was like, hey, he wouldn't, he won't or else but if he was like hey you know I can't do this anymore like your your times when you're depressed and whatever are too much and we got to split it would be really hard for me to not feel victimized in that you know oh I can't control my you know mental illness I can't I can't help it that's not me he's breaking up with my condition not with me but I get it. Like, especially from the last girl we talked about, like you can't stay in a relationship that's like killing you essentially. And you can't, you know, stay in a relationship where you're somebody's doctor basically, or like, I don't know, putting them on a psychiatric hold, like every time they, and I think on the flip side of that as well, if, if you feel unwell in that relationship and it isn't getting better, sometimes it might be the relationship sometimes it might you know it's yeah mental illness doesn't have to be dependent on a fucking relationship but sometimes you don't have the compassionate support of someone who can point you in the right direction it's no one else's job to fix you or do your therapy for you or go through that stuff but I think having someone there which is a stable baseline whilst you go and get shit sorted out is essential Definitely. Definitely. I think mental illness in, in a, in a couple can be managed very successfully. And I think exploring those ways in which you can help your partner without it becoming a very dependent relationship is essential. Like you said, Mm -hmm. lay it all out, tell people, talk to people, you know, every problem that happens in a relationship is probably down to lack of communication. Yep. So that's what we're just saying is like, just talk about it. Yeah. So what would our, our top tips be? Our first three tips. So talk about it. Talk about it. Um, Don't Google doctor it. Just, just fucking talk about it. Yeah. Don't get involved with a guy that has a band tattoo. (laughs) That's my (laughs) second tip. Um, and yeah, talk about it, hash out your mental illness or illnesses, explain what's normal for you. Mm. Almost, it's almost like a triage basically, you know, I'm not saying do this on the first date. I'm saying if you're in a relationship with somebody who has mental illness, especially if it's something that like bipolar or like depression that may not always be there, but will pop up occasionally, explain what's normal for you, what's baseline, what helps for you when you are in a funk basically and I think getting on with your own lives as well is really really important because sometimes you can just get sucked into someone else's trauma exactly yeah it's not it's not your job to to bear the pain and I think society our society sees that as like a really strong thing to do like oh you're you're miserable because this horrible thing happened to you well let me let me take you and support you and and take that pain from you but you're never going to take the pain from the person it's always going to be in there the only thing you're going to do is make your life worse 
And if you're feeling shitty, you can't help people. You got to help yourself before you help other people. So you need to find ways. And I don't know. I don't really know how you need to find ways to, to be a support to the person without allowing the relationship to become so codependent because mental illness will, it's like, it's like a spilled pot of ink. It will just kind of roll over everything and get everything black in the relationship. It'll that sounds amazing. Stain. I love black. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. It's metal. metal. <laughs> um, no, it'll stain everything in the relationship if you don't try to keep it contained. And I'm not saying the partner should not ever have issues or problems or... Episode. An episode. Yeah. I'm not saying they should never have an episode. When I say keep it contained, I don't mean don't ever have it. I mean keep it within that person mm. you're supporting it's when you go when I go to work in a hospital I don't take on all of my patients problems you know personally mm. I will sometimes there are some people where I feel really empathetic towards I will it'll I'll be thinking about them you know when I'm not at work sometimes like oh I wonder how so and so is doing it'll be a bit more but I don't you know I, I don't I don't infect myself to help people <laughs> That would be a horrible doctor-patient relationship. And in a normal relationship, if I'm allowing myself to become depressed because my partner is depressed, how the fuck is that good for anybody, you know? I think the the biggest one probably for me is not always just loving that person when they're good. Yes. It's all well and good being with someone that is attractive or performs well or like me <laughs> I was just talking about myself baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when you got to set the shit bits in someone as well and not just don't do the Marilyn Monroe quote though I'm not doing that I'm not doing that but it is about seeing a whole person not just the mm. bits that you find attractive. Holistic. A holistic approach to relationships. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Fuck, we just gave relationship advice. Oh, and you dickheads just listen to it. Yeah, we are not the people. No. <laughs> we are not therapists. I'm doing the motion like the, the, the hand. Cut like, it. Yeah, cut, 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 cut. No, we're not the people. But anyway. Um, if you're affected by any of the things on this podcast, please get in touch because, you know, we read a lot of people's stories, but I would love to hear actual listener stories. That would be really good. Yes. And it'd just be nice to sort of see that people were just as fucked as we are. Yeah, exactly. Come and share your fucked. Uh, We're here for you. We are. We are always here for you. Hashtag Maureen. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks, Maureen. So I am going to also talk about heartbreak. I'm going to talk about the deathly side though. So I'm going to look at the death of Debbie Reynolds, Carrie Fisher and broken heart syndrome. Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, you know, I Star Wars. Love her. Yeah. Well, she's dead. Loved her. Yeah. I was going to say. Sorry, <laughs> <Hi>, Carrie. <laughs> I'm sure she's fine with that wherever she is now. So Carrie Fisher, of course, Star Wars fame. Her mother, Debbie Reynolds, old Hollywood actress um, and singer, star of Singing in the Rain. Um, they are both a, like, if you can have a Hollywood power couple, except their mother and daughter instead of an actual couple, like, this is them. Very they cool. were, they had a great relationship. They were really close. 
Um, sometimes it was a bit rocky and they'd go like a decade without talking to each other, you know, but <laughs> I mean, it's two women. What do you expect? Right. Yeah, um, so, but for the most part, especially later in, in both of their lives, they were really close. They were on the red carpet together all the time. You can see videos of them like holding hands and they'll share like a little smooch or whatever. And mm. they both understood they'd been in show business like all their lives. And so they both understood that they both drew strength from each other. You know, they were mother and daughter in a, you know, in a close relationship. So Carrie Fisher was, as we probably remember, she was on an airplane um, descending into LAX when she suffered a massive heart attack. Um, she had been touring to promote a book. Um, she was in intensive care for four days before she died on December 27th, 2016. It was a huge shock. Um, but when she she was autopsied, she was found to have cocaine, heroin, MDMA, and other opiates in her system. Damn, Carrie. She'd, I mean, she'd struggled with... She was flying high. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> she probably needed that shit to sleep. Well, maybe not the cocaine. I don't know about MDMA. I don't even know. Oh, no, you might, yeah, fucking sleeping on that. Okay, well, maybe she was, like, doing the Michael Jackson thing where you take drugs to wake up and you take drugs to sleep. In fairness, though, she had bipolar, didn't she? She had a huge history of mental illness yeah. as well as um, drug substance uh, abuse issues. So sometimes if if someone takes an upper when, when they have a different kind of chemistry, it can level someone out in a way that it wouldn't do with other people. Mm. So they say. Well, she, I mean, Weston. when she got... <laughs> if you want to learn more about drugs, visit WestonSuperMare.Tourism. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, when she got cremated, she her some of her ashes were placed in a, a giant Prozac pill. Some of her ashes came up and everyone just did a fucking line of cash. Yeah, right. She probably would have thought that was funny. No, they were placed in a giant novelty Prozac pill. Oh, Carrie, fuck. I know. She was, she was a legend. Shit. So after her daughter died, one day later, Debbie Reynolds died of a stroke at age 84. That was December 28th, 2016. So before Reynolds suffered her stroke, she expressed gratitude to her daughter's fans on Facebook saying, thank you to everyone who has embraced the gifts and talents of my beloved and amazing daughter. I'm grateful for your thoughts and prayers that are now guiding her to her next stop. So Debbie Reynolds had another kid, a son named Todd Fisher, and he told the Associated Press that the stress of his sister's death was too much for his mother. She'd been planning Carrie's funeral when she actually had her stroke. Um, and she, he recalls her saying, I want to be with Carrie moments before she died. So, of course, when this happened, the press kind of, you know, went a bit crazy. And they said Debbie Reynolds died of a broken heart. Mm -hmm. And we've heard the trope before. It's an often used one. You know, can you die from a broken heart? And I'm here to tell you, yeah, kind of. Mm -hmm. In a way. Damn. I know. So, but it's not as you think. It's not like, oh, I broke up with this person. I'm going to die. It's, it's a bit more complicated, but it is properly medical. So, death from a broken heart has been told through stories since, you know, the earliest of human cultures. And many well-known couples have died in quick succession You've probably heard of, for example, Johnny Cash and his wife, June. 
my grandparents. Um, yeah, they died within months of each other. Your grandparents. Not- <laughs> no, seriously, like my granddad bull died, and then two weeks later, nanny bull died. I think every, almost everybody has a story like that. You hear that so often, these long-standing couples, and pretty much as soon as, and people say heartbreak, they say, oh, they gave up, you know, they wanted to be with the person. But it does sound quite fishy, you know, it's not, can this really happen? Can a broken heart, can grief kill you? It sounds nice and romantic, doesn't it? It does, it's a story, you know. I want someone to die very swiftly after I did, <laughs> like... I mean, just bear it in mind for husband, my hashtag three, Mark three, whatever. Mark three. Husband Mark three. Like one of those razors with three. <laughs> Mark three. Three blades. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I'd want someone to fucking die after I died. What kind of marriage is it, is it if you're not going to fucking die with me not in the world? Wow. God, that was narcissistic. That was. You could make it happen quicker, like if you're driving the car or something when it happens. But also, what if the only per- the person that that's alive after the partner is dead only dies because they were supplying them drugs or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the dealer's no longer there. And they're like, well, I can't get my crank anymore. I'm going to die. I don't think that's what happened to your grandparents, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mum. So... Can you die of heartbreak? As a medical phenomenon, broken heart syndrome has only been described and studied in medical literature since the 1990s. And it is a thing. It's called stress cardiomyopathy. So cardiomyopathy is any disease which makes it harder for the heart to pump blood through your body. So your heart basically, for some reason, something is stopping it from circulating blood properly. Right. And so this is from stress. This condition, broken heart syndrome, is usually transient, usually reversible and almost always preceded by acute emotional distress. So the death of a loved one, a fight, you know, anything that causes huge amounts of stress. Um, It appears as a massive heart attack. So from all intents and purposes, it looks like a heart attack feels like a heart attack. You probably think you're having a heart attack. Um, And it's caused by stress hormones flooding the body after these emotional events. The heart muscle is temporarily weakened, but unlike a classic heart attack um, where a clot blocks the blood flow, there's no actual physical you know, you can't see on an MRI or X-ray or whatever. It's what like is... a picture of Dave waving going. Yeah, exactly. Wish she could have been here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't see an actual reason um, like the clot. Um, it's a rare condition and affects mostly women, young and old, but mostly older. And most people do survive from broken heart syndrome. You're not going to suddenly keel over all the time. And one form of this is actually called forgive me, any Japanese listeners, um, Takosubo syndrome. Well fucking done. And I'm going to read to you a lot of words, but I'm going to explain what those words mean. <laughs> so Takosubo cardiomyopathy, if we remember. Well when, done. Yes. <laughs> remember cardiomyopathy, something that causes the heart not to beat as well. It mimics acute coronary syndrome and is accompanied by reversible left ventricular apical ballooning so the apex of the heart the pointy bit at the bottom 
That's the apex. So that's what apical mean. Referring to the apex, yeah? You're a clever motherfucker, aren't you? So that ventricle balloons as if, you know, it's got too much blood in it. But it's the in the absence of angiographically significant coronary artery stenosis. Fuck. Not <laughs> <laughs> your sexy right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Angiographically, of course, something that we can measure on an angiograph significant coronary artery stenosis so there's no narrowing stenosis means narrowing so you get this ballooning at the bottom of the heart and no obvious reason why in in japanese takosubo means a fishing pot for trapping octopus (laughs) because the left ventricle of this patient it looks like an octopus trying to escape from one of these traps i'm not making this up you've broken my trapping pot (laughs) this is science the upper chambers balloon as if the octopus is trying to escape so you got octopus heart essentially diagnosis octopus Octopus yes (laughs) and i actually have a little picture there of the the normal heart versus the takosubo heart which maybe we can post on the social media because it's a good brilliant yeah So, Dr. Ann Curtis, the chair of medicine at the Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Buffalo, says, I've seen estimates that about 1% of perceived heart attacks are because of broken heart syndrome, and that seems about right. I think every cardiologist has seen cases. We tell people that many will return to normal or near-normal heart function. So, When we see the actual syndrome, it itself is not going to cause death. But the reduction of the heart's efficiency in circulating blood is possibly causing other conditions. So Debbie Reynolds, for example, had already had a lot of health problems and she'd suffered a mini stroke the year before. So it's thought that while she may not have died of this stress-induced cardiomyopathy, it's possible that the slower pumping of the blood could cause or release a clot that could have led to her bigger stroke. So, like, if you're looking back to Steve and going, well, Steve didn't get me, but the stress that Dave caused me did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, your heart is weakened, basically. It's stunned, and it's not it's not performing well enough. And so if somebody's already has underlying conditions, if they're older... Um, it can increase the likelihood of other other causes of death, basically. According to the British Heart Foundation, people who experience broken heart syndrome can experience breathlessness, fatigue, and unexplained chest pains for months after because the heart remains swollen and inflammation remains through the body. There's actually, surprisingly, a national Takosuba registry in Scotland Fucking of all places, what with the Buckfast drinkers outside? <laughs> Maybe there's a lot of heartbreak in Scotland. Yeah, there's also lots of heroin up there. I'm like, hi, Carrie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the two are connected. So it's dedicated to researching the epidemiology of the disease. At the moment, it's difficult to gauge how many people actually have had the condition because it's only recently been properly differentiated from a heart attack. And the eventual goal is to know as much about Takosubo as we do about heart attacks. I've actually got something to admit to you, which I I haven't told you before. Well, because my... You're in love with me. 
and I'm breaking your heart. Oh, no. Your octopus heart. (laughs) Don't break my octopus jar. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? I, um, it was probably January time and my relationship had been rocky since probably October. And I was speaking to Claire and I was like, look, babe, I'm having these really bad palpitations and they're not when I'm sat down that, you know, they're not when I'm exercising. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's it feels like my heart's being electrocuted. My t- my chest has gone tight. And she's like, well, you need to go down and get an ECG. I ended up having three ECGs. I had a 24 hour tape appointment. And when I went down to the doctor, he was like, what's going on in your life at the moment? What's, what's happening? Because there's nothing being picked up on the ECGs. Mm-hmm. Your your heart is healthy. Mm-hmm. And I explained it to him. And he was like, your body is reacting physically to the stress that you're under. And I know when I laugh and I joke and stuff, but there was a huge amount of pain and trauma there and a huge amount of loss. And my body was expressing that. And probably a month later, me and Claire went down to Body Worlds in London. Oh, yeah. And there was a fucking amazing display there. And I'll post up the pictures from it because that was the moment that it clicked for me. And it was about dying from a broken heart and how your body reacts to it. And I saw this display and I just looked at her and I was like, fuck, babe. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I mean, you know, broken heart syndrome. Like I said, most in most cases, it's reversible. You're not going to have the case every time where somebody dies immediately after a loved one dies. A lot of times it's just it's chest pains and it doesn't even have to be a death. It can be a breakup. It can be a fight. It can be whatever causes those stress hormones to flood into your body. And an overproduction of stress hormones, of course, can, you know, all that shit floating around in the blood. It's opening up those channels that you don't want open and it causes physical problems. So basically what we're saying is all of our experiences slowly kill us. Well, I mean, living slowly kills us. That's depressing. It is. Yay! Here to help, guys. Here to help. (laughs) Now, another depressing thing. (laughs) There is no cure or treatment for Takosubo. But recent research has highlighted a potential drug called trimetazidine. Apparently, the heart cells of people with Takosubo cannot produce energy efficiently, which might be why the heart is depressed and not pumping blood well enough. Trimetazidine changes the way that energy is generated in heart cells from fat breakdown to sugar breakdown. So some of our cells get energy from fat. Some of them get energy from sugar. Fat's not as effective in this case um, and can actually be harmful with people with Takasubo. But sugar breakdown could produce energy more rapidly. But so is that why after a breakup you're recommended to eat lots of ice cream? Yes, that is exactly oh, why I'm a medical doctor and I say... You ben can... and fucking Jerry's. Yes. Whatever the cause and cure for broken heart syndrome, it is a dramatic way of illustrating the truth behind parity of esteem. I've talked about this before. The importance of valuing mental and physical health equally and realizing that they are connected. So, you know, we normally... It's harder to see how mental illness affects us in the long term. Obviously, we have more comorbidities. We have people more likely to develop heart disease, uh, diabetes, if they already ha- if they have a mental illness. But that's a bit harder. We don't see that. But this is like right there. This is something emotional causing a physical thing. 
science may find a treatment for broken heart syndrome, but we will always live in a world where our loved ones can die suddenly and we can be plunged into overwhelming grief that affects our mind and body. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> That's probably the most depressing sentence I ever have written. Wow. But I mean, like, it's true, though. I mean, even if they find a cure, that's good. That helps the heart problems, but you're still going to be... What about fucking everything else? You're still going to be living with grief, and grief is not very well understood, I feel. No. Um, And grief is, you know, it's always there, and it's just, you know, yeah. Ah. So to lighten the mood a little bit, I thought I would read a couple of lyrics, because there's so many songs. (laughs) Okay. We're not playing the songs. I don't have permission, but I can read the lyrics to you in a non-musical fashion. Oh, my chest hurts! (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) Off the heart, death. (laughs) So there's loads of songs about broken hearts. It's like the entire country genre is about broken hearts, right? So I found a monkeys song from first of all from 1996. I didn't know that the monkeys were still recording music no. in 1996. I thought I said 1966. No, no, oh. 1996. Called "Dying of a Broken Heart," and so I'll read to you a couple hey, of these lyrics. <laughs> I told my doctor something's wrong with me. She said, "Give me forty dollars, and we'll look and see." Hop up on the table, now we'll take some blood. Find out what you're dying of. She called me in the morning and she said, now here's the facts. Well, it isn't your liver and it isn't your back. It's not your blood sugar or the Asian flu. <laughs> that's not that's not what's killing you. You're dying of a broken heart. It really wasn't very smart. You lived through Nixon and a drug or two just to get your due. Dying of a broken heart. Hey, hey. Do you think... Um, the monkeys did that research that I did to write that song. Probably and, fucking not. And they, they knew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. They're diverse, aren't they? They are, mm. apparently. My mum really likes monkeys. I think Davy Jones is quite cute. I mean, he was. I don't know what he looks like now. If he's still alive. Probably looks like God. His face is melted from his let's, skin. Let's have a Google. Should we have a look? Davy Jones. Today, <laughs> it's a picture of like a, a coffin. <laughs> um, oh yeah, he did die in 2012. <laughs> he was, I think, when he had the the long hair. I think he was he was quite cute. Oh, Davy, rest in peace. <clears throat> what a weird way to end that segment. <laughs> rest in peace, Davy Jones. <laughs> I just want to say my sources, I wanted to mention a New York Times article by Benedict Carey called Did Debbie Reynolds Die of a Broken Heart? Uh, an article by Lauren Tipaldi, Tidaldi, sorry, on the uh, British Heart Foundation website, Can You Die from a Broken Heart? And a an article in the Texas Heart Institute Journal called Takotsubo Cardiomyopathy or Broken Heart Syndrome. Well done. Thanks. That was really good. Thank you. It was. And I I gotta say, I love pronouncing medical stuff. Like, it's my favourite. I think your pronunciation is at its best when you're pronouncing medical stuff. The rest of the time, <laughs> the therapy. <rest laughs> I sound shit all other times. But as soon as I'm pronouncing that med stuff, I'm like... Except like, drugs. Drugs are hard. The natural apathy in your voice just goes when you're like, cardioventricular macking your <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my shit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like when, you know, the fifth time I do a procedure versus the first time, right? Damn. 
So, shall we move on to our tough questions? I think so. I've actually thought of one. Okay. Mine to you was, what were the differences in your behaviour that you saw from when you were drinking to when you gave up drinking? Hmm. Is this when I was drunk or like just normal everyday behaviour? Just from like the patterns of your life to from then to now. So when I was drinking, I was self-harming a lot, but in a way that wasn't necessarily physical. I was making, on top of drinking a ton, I was making all kinds of bad decisions that I wouldn't have normally. And this wasn't, this wasn't just when I was drinking either. Um, I was involving myself with people that I, that were really harmful for me that I didn't want to be involved with, but I did anyway. Um, I pretty much was seeing life as an excuse to drink. Like every single occasion, every single event, every single instance of my life was becoming punctuated with booze. Exactly. And it, it wasn't like I was waking up. I wasn't at the point, and there are lots of people that are, I wasn't at the point where I was literally waking up and have alcohol in my bedroom and just start, you know, I wasn't at that point. Um, but literally any time that I could have had a glass in my hand, you know, after breakfast. Yeah, fine. Great. You know, um, it was making me, it was making me stress because I'm a quite a busy person, but obviously when I'm drunk or when I'm drinking a lot, I can't do anything. I can't do any schoolwork. I can't do anything. So I was basically taking big chunks out of my life when which I could do nothing except have a good time, have sex with people and be, you know, naughty. Basically, that's all I was doing. I was doing it as a way of, you know, coping, a way of hurting myself. And so life outside of drinking was super busy because I was trying to squeeze everything in, in those times when I wasn't. And it was increasingly getting more and more that there, there was less and less of that time that wasn't drinking. Damn girl. Yeah. See, I met you when you stopped drinking. I think when you just stopped drinking as well. Didn't yeah. I? Yeah. And it, you know, and I got to say, since I stopped drinking, you know, my, I wonder how much of my personality and my likes and dislikes were influenced by my drinking because now I'm in a completely different place. Mm. I have different friends, not all different, but a lot of different friends and I'm in a new relationship, you know, how much and for how long was my whole sense of self dictated by booze? Sounds like you were sedating yourself in life. And I've seen, there's been quite a few people that have been close to me have used something to sedate themselves from the reality of their own experience. Mm. And I think when it's getting to that point with someone and you can see it, or you can feel it in yourself, you did the right thing, you know, and lots of people can't do that. It's too scary. It's, too big a thing to do that's what I like about you is you look at those things and you're like no fuck you I'm gonna do that (laughs) (laughs) and there's loads of people that wouldn't or couldn't and no judgments that it's it is what it is but the nature of addiction is when you are powerless to something and it is bleeding into all the other areas of your life and it sounds like it was yeah and I mean I look back and I say I worry now that I was more fun then 
that I'm a I'm fucking boring now. I just know you're at the baseline of this, so <laughs> you're like, and you're really fucking boring. No, <laughs> but then drunk fun is not. Nobody else thinks your drunk fun is fun. No, like for anybody, you think you're being like the life of the party, and you're being a fucking idiot, basically. Yep. So it's really it's hard. It's hard. You know, it's hard to assess your personality when you were under the influence. And you're loaded all the time. Exactly. You can look back and cringe at some of the decisions you made and some of the things you did. Yep. Yep. But yeah, I'm interested. It's almost like I don't want to say I've been reborn because that sounds so cliche and cheesy, but oh, it's like Christian on I've me. got a new start in life. No, I'm finding who I am now, basically. Aww. Aww, yay. Well done. Yay. All right. Come on, hit me. <clears throat> I didn't actually think of one, so I'm going to just. Well, I didn't think of one until halfway through. Fuck. I always do this. Uh, okay. Right. Without sounding like I'm into eugenics, which I'm not, and I'm not trying to say that you are, how do you feel about people that have complex mental health problems and or physical health problems, or both, because they often go hand in hand, how do you feel about them having children knowing that it is very possible that their kids, you know, could have issues, that their illness could affect their, their children in a lot of ways? What do you think? I'd be massively hypocritical, wouldn't I? Because (laughs) I'm many shades of fucked up and I've had a baby. Um, My grandma had bipolar. My dad had bipolar. I had crude bipolar. Um, So, yeah, it's the family illness. Mm. And I made that choice. And when I'm in my darkest moments, I'm, fuck, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, let alone my baby. But I think it's a choice. I think... It's different. I I personally look at a situation. If a person cannot look after themselves, why are they having a child in any kind of situation, whether that's physical health, mental health, anything, financially? Like, if you cannot provide or have... If you cannot provide the full picture for that child, even if you're not able to do every element of it yourself, then why are you doing it? Yeah. I think, I mean, but as we know, mental capacity is assessed per situation, Mm. per whatever the problem is, not in an overall picture. Mm. So it's possible that they might be fucked up in many ways, but... I mean, you've all looked at people and gone, how the fuck are you allowed to have kids? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking sterilise yourself, Never, never have I thought that, ever. Oh, I come from fucking Western Superman. (laughs) Blink an eye and it's like, fuck, she popped out another one? I don't think we're ever going to get that sponsorship from Western Superman Tourism Board that we're hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) Western Superman nightmare. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but... That being said, then, if you knew that bipolar was a family illness, why did you? Because of the way that I deal with my illness. Okay. Because I think there's a lot of people that when you are diagnosed with something or you have a quirk, people just see the negatives. Whereas I'm super fucking productive. I'm incredibly organized. I am savage when it comes to making sure that I can make critical choices. I thrive in a fucking crisis. People don't fucking scare me. There's not an awful lot that you can chuck at me and I will be freaked out at. Um, but on the flip side of that, I'm emotionally broken. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if my son did inherit it and if he could inherit some of the traits that I have that have really fucking kicked me in the ass to get to where I am now, 
who's to say? I don't. There's there's different shades of like trauma or feeling crap or whatever. And who's to say that the intensity that that you experience life with is too much? Mm. You know, it's everyone's gonna go through shit. It's about how you manage it, isn't it? Well, exactly. And I mean, it's kind of like the whole the bucket model of you know what I'm talking about, right? Yep. You've seen the bucket. The bucket so, bucket. Yeah, the bucket <laughs> bucket. And so all of our traumas and experiences fill up this bucket and whether or not it overflows or whatever. I think I don't know, I kinda wasn't it's not a bucket, I've got a fucking water bucket. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a sieve. <laughs> it just goes right through. Um and if you can, I suppose if you can give your child, if you even if you knew that there was a strong possibility your child was going to inherit your your illness, if you, if the best you can do is give them a nice childhood, mm. be as good a parent as possible, and hopefully, at least in that regard, you won't be adding to their bucket, essentially. Add it to the fucking bucket. So, and I always tell Corey, I'm like, Mum, we will just pay for your therapy. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, baby. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got, of course, the mental illness, and I also have um, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, which mm. immuno problems that are very easily passed on to the next generation. And so, you know, at first, this was after I'd had my first child, and I was like, I'll never, I'll never have a kid knowing that I have this. And now I'm kind of like, because eh. <laughs> I still, it's not like, you don't have a diminished quality of life to the point where you can't function. No, exactly. And it's not like you're choosing to inflict things on your kids. Like, it's the possibility that they might have this thing, but I have this thing, and I wouldn't end my life because of it. I wouldn't choose not to be alive because I have arthritis or because I have mental illness, you know? It's like, yeah. There's always going to be bits as well that you'll pass on to your child that you fucking hate about yourself. Oh, yeah, like... like Corey's got my ex-husband's weird big toes. <laughs> and I always take the piss out of Corey. I'm like, look at your fucking toes. Well, maybe if you don't have to pay for therapy, you could pay for plastic surgery for him. That's right. Get his toes fixed. <laughs> Get a little help. Yeah. We all need a little toe tuck now and then. <laughs> oh, talking of that, the lip ladies got back to me the other day. Okay. Hopefully they're going to be opening soon so I can get my full voluptuous looking lips. I look forward to it. <clears throat> I want you to send me a photo like minutes after they do it when it's like really super swollen and horrible i just look horrific yeah look at me now Mm. do i look pretty now we're gonna have to get like an anti-flapping filter on the microphone fuck off so like like a fish out of water like a collagen filter yeah All right. I think this has been a great episode and I've really enjoyed talking about really depressing topics with you today. As always. If you, as always, anyone out there, if you want to contribute, if you'd like to leave a comment, uh, send us a message about the topic that we talked about today or literally anything else, please send us a message. And other than that, I suppose just take care of yourself. Try not to die and kick the fucking bucket. Yeah, wear a mask if you want. Wear a condom. Wear a mask, wear a condom, wear a raincoat if it's raining. Stay away from boys. Yeah, uh, and girls. Stay away from fucking everyone. Yeah, just keep isolating. (laughs) Stay the fuck away from me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go breaking my heart. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Done.